We're in Luke 8 this morning, verses 4 through 15. Thank you, Paul, for reading that, and thank you to all of our men who pray and read Scripture for your thoughtfulness and the way that you pray and uh, demonstrate that you take it seriously. We were out to eat uh, the other night with some friends, and uh, we had we have kids, they have kids, and so we sort of had the adults on one end of the table, and we had kids on the other end of the table, and as we're over here as adults having a conversation and talking, Calvin began saying, hey dad, hey dad, hey dad, hey dad, and it was probably upon the 15th or 16th time that it registered to me, and I actually heard it. Now, now this is difficult to explain unless you've, you've been around small children, but I heard the first 15, but I didn't hear it. It wasn't until I sort of tuned in that I, somewhere in the back of my mind, I realized he's been saying that for quite some time now. Once I actually heard it is the moment I realized that he'd been talking to me for this whole time. In our passage this morning, if you, if you were paying attention when Paul read the text, there's four different people who hear the word. They hear it, but only one group hears it. Only one group receives it and bears fruit based on what they've heard. Jesus says it this way in our text, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This passage is a call for us to respond to the word of God. Specifically to respond to the word that's from God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a call as Jesus travels and he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. It's to hear the message that the sinless son of God has come into this world to save sinners through his own sacrificial death and resurrection. The call from Jesus this morning is to hear that and not harden your heart. To hear that and not harden your heart. Heart. The passage is about how we receive the message that Christ has come to proclaim. And so before we get into the parable itself, I want to take a minute to, to think about, well, let's be honest, it's going to be more than a minute. Um, I, I want to take some time to think about the nature and the purpose of parables because Jesus says some really hard things and some really striking things in our text. So I want to deal with that. I want to wrestle with that. And then I want to deal with the parable. So point number one this morning, if you, if you take notes, if you're keeping track, the word of God either hardens or it transforms our hearts. In verse uh, four there, and when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said to them in a parable. Now drop down to verse 9 really fast. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So here we have Jesus. He's continuing to draw quite a crowd the idea in this passage is that as he travels from town to town, this crowd is actually growing and growing, and people from town after town are coming out to hear Jesus. There's probably some in the crowd who don't even know what they're going out for. They're just following along. They know there's some excitement. There's some stir in the, in the city, so let's go find out what this is all about. 
And so you have in Luke, he sets this up often, where you have the Pharisees who have, by and large, they've made up their mind about Jesus. In Luke 7, it seemed like, oh, maybe there's one holdout. Maybe this guy named Simon. And then Jesus just completely shows Simon that he has rejected Christ. He needs to see his son. And so by and large, the Pharisees have rejected Jesus. Jesus' claim to be God in the flesh is too much for them. They can't handle it, and they begin to plot how they might remove Jesus. And then you have this crowd, and the crowd is on the verge, I'm suggesting, based on the way Jesus speaks to them here, on the verge of total and utter rejection of Jesus. They've come to check him out. But based on the parable that he tells, that he's about to deliver to them, and the way he explains the purpose of parables, it it seems fair to describe the crowd as uncertain, but very, very fickle, even obstinate towards Jesus. They are leaning really hard towards rejecting him at this point. And so before diving into the parable itself, let's think about uh, the nature of parables. Now, the original meaning of this word parable, it was to cast something alongside something else. And so it it came to be used of these stories that Jesus would tell and even others could tell, where he would cast the story alongside truth to illustrate a point. And so that sort of helps us grasp what a parable is. It's Jesus using a story to help communicate this truth. Some have said it very simplistic that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, which is, which is true insofar as it goes. But we have to wrestle with Jesus' words here in verses 9 and 10 and the purpose of parables. Look again there at verse 10. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the disciples. But for others, they are in parables. So that, that's, that's a purpose or result. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So the disciples in verse 9, they understand that Jesus is doing more with this parable than giving them some kind of gardening instruction. He's trying to make a point. So they come to Jesus and say, what's the point? And before Jesus gives them the point, he, he, it's almost as if he answers to my disciples, to you who have committed to following me, to to you who are sensitive to my teaching and who desire to sit under my teaching, I have given to you through parables the secret of the kingdom of God. So one of the purposes of parables then is to reveal what had previously been concealed or hidden. This is given to the disciples in our text. So to, to, to the disciples, and, and then to subsequently us in the Word, we might use these parables to gain insight into Christ's kingdom, to see things that were previously concealed in the Old Covenant. In fact, that word secret there, it means, it, it means mystery. It refers to that which was hidden in the past that's now being disclosed in the life of and ministry, and teaching of Jesus. But these things, they, 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 weren't, they, they were hidden in plain sight, so to speak. They were right there in the text. 
when Peter and Paul and they, they go to preach, what is it? they reason from the Scriptures, and they demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. So everything's there in the Old Testament, but it was, it was, it was concealed. It was hard to put together. It was hard to imagine how all of this came together until we saw the person and work of Christ and until it's been written down for us in this book, the Bible. So the data was all there, but the lesson behind it was concealed in some sense until the coming of Jesus. It was difficult to discern until Christ came and explained it in parables and called apostles to himself to teach and to write down Scripture. So we can consider then a text like Isaiah 53. And now that we've seen Christ come and we've seen him die on the cross, we read Isaiah 53 and we say, by his wounds we are healed Hello. I mean, how did you miss that? How did you miss Isaiah 53? But if we're humble enough, I mean, we should at least admit that the disciples who traveled with Jesus, they knew the Old Testament better than we know it, and Jesus specifically told them he had to die, and they didn't see it. They didn't see it. So we should humble ourselves and admit that before Christ came into the world, and he became the sacrifice by his wounds, we are healed, that would have been a head-scratcher for us as well. So there's these mysteries of the kingdom. There's these mysteries of even the church, we might say, that are hidden in plain sight and are made clear by Jesus through these parables to those who are willing to receive truth. But there's another reason Jesus gives. And this is the hard one, right? The, the, the first ways, that's easy for us to talk about. Here's the hard one. For others, that refers in verse 10, I think, to those who have rejected Jesus. For them, the parables serve a completely different purpose. They don't reveal, they conceal. So Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah 6. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you're welcome to. Isaiah 6, it's a passage that's familiar to you, I'm sure. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah walks into the temple and he sees the last person he expects to see there, the Lord himself, high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. There's these seraphim, literally means burning ones. There's these angelic creatures that are flying around the throne, and they're calling back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when Isaiah is confronted with the presence of God, and, and therefore the holiness of God, he recognizes his un unworthiness. Isaiah, the prophet, says, my lips are unclean. The one thing he's good at, speaking, he says, unclean. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then one of those burning creatures takes tongs from the altar and grabs a burning coal and flies right at Isaiah. And he's thinking, yep, this is exactly what an unworthy person gets when they stand in the holiness of God. But those tongs, didn't, that, that coal, that fire didn't destroy Isaiah, so they touched it to his lips and says, this is your cleansing, this is your forgiveness. And then God cries out, whom will we send and who will go for us? Now, this is God's announcement. This isn't God pleading and saying, oh, Isaiah, we really need you. 
And likewise, Isaiah's response, I don't think is, I'm right here. I think Isaiah's response is timid and meek. Here I am, Lord. Send me. And then God says, well, here's your message. Here's your message. This is what he's going to preach to them. Go and say to this people there, if you turn there, it's in verse, beginning in verse 9. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I was privileged to preach an ordination service earlier this year, and that was not the message I gave. Make them dull, make them blind, make them deaf. Then Isaiah says, okay, Lord, I get it. You know, there's hard seasons of ministry. There's good seasons of ministry. How long do I have to do this? Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So here's Isaiah, and his commission is to make the heart of the people dull, to make them blind, lest they see. And and so the interesting thing then is to track Isaiah and his message through the book of Isaiah. How did he obey this text? Did he literally go out and say, you need to become dull, you need to become blind, you need to become deaf? No, he does not do that. Instead, he lays out the word of the Lord. He teaches the truth. He receives as a prophet of the Lord the word of the Lord, and he conveys it to the people. And it's the message that Isaiah gives. It's his preaching of the truth that then hardens the people. It then blinds the people. It makes them deaf. It's the continual rejection of this truth that is the outcome of Isaiah's ministry. Probably the closest thing we have as a parallel in the New Testament is Jesus' word in John chapter 8, verse 45, where he says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. That because, it's, it's striking, it's, it's odd. We wouldn't expect to see that there. We'd expect for Jesus to say, even if I tell you the truth, you would not believe me. But he says, because, it's, it's causal. The reason you're rejecting this is because it's the truth. The reason you're rejecting this is because it's the truth. So the truth itself, when when we harden our hearts, it blinds, it deafens, it hardens. And as Isaiah proclaims truth in his ministry, in his context, because of the audience's rejection of the Lord, the truth ensures that their hearts are hardened. And Jesus says, by quoting Isaiah chapter 6, he says that he has come and he has fulfilled this pattern. He has come and he has fulfilled this pattern. He has not only come with the truth, he has not only come with the word, but he is the truth and he is the word. And by and large, he has been rejected because men love darkness rather than light. So then what Jesus is getting at in verse 10 is where he is aware, and he's always aware, we saw him read Simon's mind earlier, where Jesus is aware that this hardness of heart has taken place in a person 
or in a group of people, he is willing to speak in a way that conceals the light from them. And this is a judgment because they reacted against the truth and they rejected Christ. So this is a judgment that results from a constant hardening against the word. That he is willing to speak in ways that would conceal the truth from them. So we need to hear this. When a person continually rejects God's word, when a person continually rejects God's word and hardens his heart, he runs the risk of suffering God's judgment in the present. It's almost as if this, this judgment that we're awaiting gets sort of implanted in the present. And this judgment looks like a lack of revelation. This is what God did in the Old Testament with Israel. What happened when they, when they rejected God as king? Well, they had Saul for a little bit, but Saul, the prophet, the one with the word, he departs, for, or Samuel departs from Saul. And it's indicative that the word of the Lord has left the people of Israel, and they are now groping through darkness. So here's the warning for us this morning. Turn to Jesus while you can. Turn to Christ while you can. The author of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if he speaks to you through the proclamation of the gospel, through the proclamation of his word, do not harden your hearts. There is a very, very real danger of sitting in church week in and week out, and week in and week out, hardening your heart and rejecting the gospel and rejecting the gospel and rejecting the gospel. You see, we should not presume upon God's grace. We, we love and preach that God is gracious and loving, but He doesn't owe us anything. So it's eternally dangerous to our soul to think, you know what, I'm just going to sow my wild oats for a little bit, and then I'll get right with the Lord. Sort of a, a best of both worlds situation. And the reality is that if that's the way you think about sin, and if that's the way you think about God, that that's the best of both worlds, that you get to live in sin, and then you get to know God through Christ, man, you're not guaranteed. You're not guaranteed that chance. You're not guaranteed that moment. And unless the Lord softens your heart to see your need for it, you will continue rejecting Him. So every time we resist God's word, we run the risk of so hardening our hearts that we'll never then return to Christ. So the word of God here, I keep saying the word of God, the word of God, specifically in this context, we're talking about the word from God, the message from God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when I say to run to Jesus while you can, it's because Jesus has come into this world. We sang about it, that he left the, the right hand of the Father, he took on flesh, he obeyed the will of the Father at every turn, unlike you and I, who seem to find ways to disobey at every turn, and Jesus took in himself the penalty for our sin. Because each of us, outside of Christ, we stand rightfully, by, and in light of all God's justice, condemned before him as a result of our rebellion. But Christ has come, he has lived the righteous life that you and I should have lived but haven't. And he died the death that you and I should have died. So that in him we might trade places where he took our sin and we might receive his righteousness. 
he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you come to Christ, if you throw yourself at his mercy, if you rely on his work and not your work, if you turn from your sin and embrace him, you are credited with the righteousness of Jesus, and you receive the benefits that, the Christ, that Jesus has earned. You are treated as a son. You are treated as a child of God. Not because we've earned that right, but because Christ did. And when you come to Christ, you're in Christ and you receive those benefits. So forgiveness, a right relationship with God, becoming adopted into God's family, gaining eternal life, having hope in this world and in the world to come, all of it, all of it comes to those who humble themselves and come to God and say, I'm turning away from my sin. I'm relying completely and utterly on the work of Jesus for my behalf. I have, I have nothing, Lord, to offer but my sin. And Jesus says, I have nothing to offer but my righteousness. I don't know. Jesus doesn't have any sin to give us. So we make a trade. Rely on his work today. This word, then, it goes out. The sower sows the seed. The, the, the proclamation goes out. And, and the hope that we have, and what Jesus, I think, is getting at in this Isaiah 6 quotation, is that the word always achieves the purpose for which God sent it out. It can harden the heart, or it can convert the sinner. It can harden, or it can soften. It can harden, or it can convert. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall uh, succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the word then and the reception of Jesus' word form the basis of this parable. So now, hopefully we're, we're ready to dive into this parable. If you're sitting there and you're wondering, well, how can I be confident that I haven't hardened my heart? How can... Or, better yet, how can, I, how can I take precaution and guard myself against the things that are going to draw my heart away from Jesus? Well, if that's what you're wondering this morning, that's good news because this text is for you. So the word goes out and it hardens or it softens. And so the purpose of the parable is this, to hold fast to the word of Christ. Hold fast to the word of Christ. Christ. Look in verse 2, or 5, sorry. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. 
They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. If you're using the ESV this morning, the heading says the parable of the sower. But these headings, those little bold headings, those aren't inspired by the Lord. So we can, we can jab at that a little bit. It's probably better titled the parable of the four soils. Because the emphasis falls on the reception of the word, not necessarily the farmer himself. So we can imagine the parable that we just read easily enough. You have a farmer in ancient Israel over there in the Middle East. He's got a sack of seed that's uh, slung over his shoulder. It's late October. It's time for sowing. And they would expect to harvest come spring in April or May. And so in his explanation of the parable... Jesus tells us then that this seed that's being sown by the farmer is the word of God. Again, we we argue that's the message from God, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus, that he has come and he has been preaching and proclaiming this good news. It's the mission for which he has been sent, he said back in chapter 4. And so Peter, one of the disciples with whom Jesus is, is speaking here, hears this. The, the seed, it's, it's the word of God. It's the message about God. And Peter would later write this in his epistle. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then Peter says this, and the word of the Lord is the good news that was preached to you. So we're saying that this, this word that goes out, it's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And so as the gospel is preached, whether initially by Christ or his disciples that are going to be sent out here uh, in, a, in a couple chapters, as well as commissioned after the resurrection of Jesus to preach this news, or whether it's... Um, Preachers and in good churches all over this world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, or it's you sharing Christ over a cup of coffee, or sending an email to a friend. As the gospel is preached, there's four types of ways it's received, or really it's four types of hearers, four types of people. And they are distinguished by the way they either receive or reject the word of God. Now, these four are not on equal ground. Jesus is not saying there's four perfectly acceptable ways to receive this gospel. He's saying there's three really bad ways to reject Jesus. There's one good way to receive him. So, it's important also to remember that Jesus has just said that what he wants to do in this parable is to to reveal something that's true about the kingdom of God, something that might have been concealed in the past and is now being revealed, something of how the kingdom operates. And so contrary to popular opinion, Jesus hasn't come with a political army to overthrow Roman rule. 
He doesn't gather an army and lead a crusade in order to convert the sinner. His kingdom is for those who humbly receive his word, who humbly come to Christ. And as we'll see when we get to the text, cling to that word and bear fruit throughout the course of their life. So let's look at these various ways then in which uh, we might respond to the gospel or these different groups of people. We start with those who just outright reject the message of the gospel. In verse 5, the sower is sowing seed in his field, and and cutting right through the middle of this field is, is a path that's been worn by people who just decided that this is the way we travel, and it happens to cut through this field. And so they, they wear out this path. They, they push down the ground. It's become hardened, much like the trails here in the Black Hills or that, you know, where your dog runs around the fence line and has destroyed all the grass, and you'll never get grass to grow there again. The dirt gets hardened. The dirt gets imprint, in, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna get it, impenetrable. So the seed gets trampled under the feet of those who are traveling along this path. And also, since the seed can't sink into the soil, it becomes easy prey then for the birds to come and they eat up all your grass seed that you've thrown along the edge of your fence to try to get your grass to grow. The seed gets trampled underfoot. And interpreting this in verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, that there's a danger then of hearing this gospel and being unmoved by Christ. To have a hard heart, the, the gospel sits there. It can't penetrate the soil. And so it becomes easy prey then, Jesus says, for the devil to come and snatch away this seed. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that Satan has indeed blinded the unbeliever from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. How does Satan do this? Charles Spurgeon, preaching a similar text, gave a great list of tools that Satan uses to blind people from seeing their need for the gospel and Jesus' glorious provision in the gospel. And one example he gives is the utter uh, consumption of that which is in the world or being consumed by that which is in the world. You know, I've never actually preached a funeral, but I've been to a bunch as somebody who served on staff at a long time, and I've been to a bunch of funerals. And one of the saddest things as a pastor going to so many of these funerals is when you go and you hear, oh, how much, if you knew Myrtle, you knew she loved her cats. Or if you, if you knew Larry, he lived for golf. He lived for his muscle cars. Or look how, uh, how great his business was. And everybody who has a chance to talk at the funeral, that's all they have a chance to talk about. That's all they know about this person was their commitment to these things that in eternity, they, they don't matter. They're not necessarily wrong. There's nothing wrong with golf. There's, well, there is something wrong with cats, but... There's nothing wrong with having a successful business. And then there's this really weird moment in the funeral where then they got to preach the gospel and you're like, how did, what happened? I thought we were talking golf. I thought we were talking animals. I thought we were talking boats and muscle cars. 
And it becomes really clear that what really characterized this person was not Christ. It wasn't Christ. And it's heartbreaking. Because there's, uh, uh, there's this false hope that goes out. Spurgeon says also, there's a clinging to our favorite sin. I can't come to Christ. It would cost me too much. I'd have to give up my little pet sin here that I just don't want to give up. He says also there's a false peace. Spurgeon called it making wrong inferences about the grace of God. It's a false peace that, that God does not judge or God does not condemn or God is not a God of justice, so therefore I don't have to be worried about His justice. That's a false peace that can harden our hearts and keep someone from coming to Christ. There's a legalistic self-righteousness. This is what we saw in Simon in Luke chapter 7. You know, we might walk away and say, oh, the person with the hard heart, I know exactly who it is. It's the militant atheist. And that's, that's true, but it's not all that's true. It applies, but it's not all that applies. In fact, the, the closest contextual example that we have of this sort of heart is Simon the Pharisee, who invited Jesus over but he was convinced of his own goodness, and therefore there was no honest self-examination of his own heart. There is no awareness of his sin. There's not a, a humble bone in his body that would lead him to turn to Jesus. So Satan comes, and he snatch, uh, snatches away the seed of the gospel. So there are those who are unmoved. They don't care that they've heard the gospel. They might not even recognize that they've heard the gospel. The word sits on top of their stony hearts and Satan comes and steals it away. There are also those in verse 6 and 13 who have an emotional, an initial emotional response to Jesus, but they do not endure during trials. This is a seed that falls on the rock. It's not uncommon in parts of Israel in the Middle East to have a very, very thin layer of dirt that actually sits right on top of limestone. And, and if you throw some seed on that, when the spring comes, actually that really, really thin layer of dirt, it actually warms up faster than the rest of the soil. So man, things are springing up left and right, and you think, man, this is great. Look at all this crop I have, but because it's, it's on top of the rock, it can't hold the moisture that the plant needs to settle in its roots and to grow and to bear fruit. So Jesus says these are those who have an initial, even joyous response, some sort of an emotional response to Jesus, but they fail to endure. You know, I worked with teenagers for a long time, and we would go to camp. We'd go to two different camps every year, and when I would come back from camp, you know, at these camps, they'd be in church services twice a day and hearing the gospel 10, 15 times. Then we'd have small group breakouts. You're like, why would a teen want to go to that? They, they wanted it. But, but we'd be in these church services. They'd be hearing the gospel. We'd be talking to our own students about the gospel. And, and I knew, I knew when I got back, there would be the well-meaning question, how many teenagers got saved? Right? And, and, and the answer is not as easy as, you know, seven teenagers pass from death to life this week. The, the correct answer is, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, these kids haven't even shown an interest in baptism yet. They haven't even taken the first step in obeying Jesus. 
So it's true. The moment any teenager places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they are justified. They, are, they move from death to life. I'm not denying that. I'm denying we can't know for sure in the course of a few days. Because saving faith is a faith that endures suffering. Saving faith is a, a faith that endures suffering that's present in our world. Genuine faith is a tested faith. But Jesus warns that there will be many who hear the gospel and they'll respond to it, at least in some form of, of fashion, but their response falls short of true, genuine, saving faith in Christ. And they fall away when life gets hard. Now, I think if you're a member here, you understand where we're coming from as we talk about falling away. But let me just say for those of you who are visiting, I'm not talking about somehow losing your salvation. I'm talking about demonstrating through the evidence of your life that, that you never knew Christ because you fell away. And if you, if you walk away from Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, the author of Hebrews says. There's another group. There are those who are too distracted by this world to remain committed to Jesus. This seed falls among the thorns in verse 7 and 14. As the farmer sows the seed, there's some ground that's actually decent. It's, it's, it's good soil. But the seed, this, the seed we want to grow, will have to compete with greedy neighbors, weeds and thorns. And these weeds grow up and they choke out the seed. The thorns that Jesus used here could grow up to six feet tall. And they would suck up all the moisture uh, around this little tiny seed that needs moisture in order to grow. And so th this little seed that looked promising initially, now it's choked out by the cares of this world. That's what Jesus says. The, the, the pleasures and the cares of this world are the thorns that choke out the seed. So, so we should, again, be warned here. What a danger. What a danger misplaced priorities are to our faith in Christ. What a danger misplaced priorities are to our faith in Christ. Our own welfare, our own comfort, our own accumulation of stuff can woo us. Like the siren's call, we can be drawn away from Jesus. You know, open Sin is not the only thing that destroys souls. Open sin is not the only thing that destroys souls. There's a lulling to sleep by the cares of this world that is equally deadly. Lastly, there are those who hear the word, cling to it, and bear fruit. This is the seed that fell into the soil. Now, I don't know if you caught this. I wouldn't ex expect you to catch this on sort of a cursory reading, but... Notice the different prepositions that Jesus uses to describe where the seed lands. Each one is a different word in the Greek. In verse 5, the seed falls along the path. In verse 6, the seed falls on the rock. In verse 7, it falls among the thorns. But the seed that lasts, the seed that bears fruit, it falls into the soil falls into the soil. The word that finds fertile soil takes root deep in the heart. 
You see, Satan has indeed, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, blinded the eyes of the unbeliever from seeing the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. But Paul says God has shown the light of the gospel into our hearts. If you've come to Christ, he has shown that light into your hearts, and you've been given eyes to see the glory of the gospel. And despite the pull of the world, and despite the schemes of Satan, despite the fact that he's roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, despite the, the pull of this world, this person holds fast to the truth, clings to the truth. And so the call for us is to cling to the gospel, cling to Christ. The author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus. Consider him. Cling to him. The, the way of you know, like we talk about fasteners, like a screw is a fastener. It fastens one piece of wood to another. Hold fast to Jesus. Jesus also says that this seed, it bears fruit with patience in verse 15. That is to persevere. That is to bear up under the pressures of this life and this world. To bear up under the temptations of this world that are calling you to desert Christ. When that seed finds fertile soil, it bears fruit. It bears fruit. Genuine faith is then a persevering faith, a faith that continues. Saving faith, though it is a rocky road, saving faith in Christ overcomes the obstacles that prevent fruitfulness. True, genuine, saving faith. Again, our lives may look like this a little bit. But over the course of our Christian life, by God's grace, we overcome the obstacles that prevent fruitfulness if we are truly in Christ. So sure, yeah, it, you know, Luke and Jesus, they're not saying that emotions are all bad. There's an important aspect that emotions play in our Christian life. We're called to experience peace and joy and fear at times. And certainly there are pleasures in this world that God has given us to enjoy. But these things are not ultimate. These things do not ultimately satisfy. J.C. Ryle said it this way, Nothing should content us. Nothing should content us but deep, humbling, self-mortifying work of the Holy Ghost and a heart in union with Christ. Strive for that. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? How do we respond? I think we could make a ton of applications here. We could go to evangelism, and we could make tons of applications for your evangelism, and don't be disheartened when somebody rejects Christ, when you share the gospel. We could go there. But I want to press into one specific area for a few minutes, and it has to do with that patient endurance or persevering in the faith. I want to press upon our hearts that we demonstrate the reality of our faith by our enduring reliance upon Christ and by remaining faithful to Him and to His Word. That's the demonstration. That's the evidence of our saving faith. You see, the Bible never assumes sort of this fatalistic um, approach to persevering in our faith. Well, it's God's grace that keeps me. So I guess I'll just kind of wait around and see what happens. The Bible doesn't come close to approaching that sort of fatalism. In fact, logically, it would be tempting to say, well, I don't know, there's people here that look saved and they weren't. So I guess I'll just kind of wait around and see what happens. 
I'll find out one way or the other. But if we, if we think that's what the implication of the text is, we, we, we'd be wise. I keep quoting Hebrews on purpose because the point of Hebrews is to endure you, to push you to remain faithful to Jesus. Hold fast to Christ. Don't be lured away. Don't go back to the law. Don't be tempted by the pleasures of this world. Keep following Christ. Keep holding to Him. So the, the primary application this morning is beware Beware of anything that dulls your senses to Christ, that lulls you to sleep as it pertains to his gospel. And I think as we walk through this parable, we see two kind of big categories that might lead us to walk away from Christ. One we mentioned is suffering. Beware of suffering and prepare your heart for suffering. We all suffer at some level and at some point, and these trials tempt us to question the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. They will seek to pull you from your commitment to Christ. But Jesus says it's a time of testing. So it's revealing. It's showing the genuineness or lack thereof of our faith. James 1 says we should rejoice in trials because they're purifying us. They're making us like Christ so that we might... Um, endure. So I think we should start now, preparing your heart for the, for the day that something goes tragically wrong. Preparing your heart, considering the faithfulness of God today so that when life gets hard, it's settled, it's rooted in your heart. You know that God is faithful despite your circumstances. You understand, you, you are committed to the truth that I'm not, I'm not convinced of God's love for me because my circumstances go great or that I'm healthy or that I'm rich. I am convinced of God's love for me because God has demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So start now. Prepare your heart for suffering. There's a, there's a specific type of suffering that's, that Satan loves to use to sort of snatch the seed, to sort of lull to sleep, that, when it, that, that draws our hearts away from Christ, and that's the suffering or the pain of persecution. The pressure that we face in the United States right now is more of a, a social pressure, it's more of a cultural pressure, but I don't you know, that's what First Peter is dealing with. And Peter is not afraid to call that a level of persecution. No, we're not. I wasn't scared to come into church this morning for my own physical safety. But there is a social, a cultural pressure. Christianity is becoming less and less acceptable. The, the, the broad and popular thinking is moving from, I think you're wrong for believing the Bible. Slowly and surely, it's becoming, I think you're evil for believing the Bible. And so we have this pressure on us that puts immense pressure on us. We don't like to be called evil. No one wants to be told they're evil. And so the message of the world can feel so loud and the majority can be so loud that it puts pressure on us to say, yeah, can I really believe this book? Can I really commit myself to Christ? And so the call for us is as the cultural pressure mounts, hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ, remembering what he promised the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. That's persecution and testing. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Cool. Then we get out, right? Be faithful in the death. Be faithful in the death, and he will give you the crown of life. In fact, if you have time this afternoon, read Revelation 2 and 3 and the letters to the churches. To him who conquers, to him who conquers, to him who conquers, to him who conquers. Remain faithful unto death. And if our brothers and sisters all over this globe are remaining faithful unto death, perhaps we, by God's grace, can remain faithful in the face of social and cultural pressure to deny Christ and to deny his word. But there's another, another thing that might pull us away, and that's, we might use this big word, distraction. You got suffering and you got distraction. Well, we know the author of Hebrews warns us to beware the deceitfulness of, of sin because it's going to harden your heart. So certainly sin will harden us. Certainly false teaching tempts people to turn from Christ and to embrace a false gospel. But what I want to think about for a moment is the, what Jesus says, the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world. Beware of the distraction of the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world. Work and, and youth sports and entertainment and social media and family engagements and errands, they don't have to be. They don't have to be, but they can all become thorns that choke out the seed of the gospel. To me, the scariest line in the parable is found in verse 14. But as they go on their way, as they go on their way, these thorns choke out the seed. As they go on their way. The scary thing about this is how subtle it can be. It's as you're going. It's as you're living life. It's as you're going to work and coming home and trying to parent and trying to plan vacations. It's, it's all of these things. As you are going, we can become particularly vulnerable to making these things that are, can be good things ultimate things. They receive priority over Christ, and when they receive priority over Christ, they become deadly to our soul. So what will we give our ultimate allegiance to? Christ or the cares of this world? As you are going on your way, as you take care of your responsibilities that you have, remember Christ, consider Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. You know, let me just say quickly, be especially leery of that which distracts you from the fellowship of other believers. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Oh, man, I need to take care that my heart is not hardened and that I've truly embraced the gospel. Well, what do we do? But exhort one another every day. This is a fellowship of believers. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do I protect myself from the deceitfulness of sin? I surround myself with brothers and sisters in Christ who love Jesus, and they love me enough to, to encourage me and to push me, and yes, even rebuke me if necessary, that I might not fall into the deceitfulness, the hardness of sin. The other day we were hiking 
um, somewhere in the Black Hills, I don't know, but my, my boys wanted to race, you know, and it was, it was our whole family, Lizzie was there too, and they, they wanted to race back to the car, but the rules were, it was me and Lizzie versus them, and everybody had to be at the car for your team to win, and so we lost, because I just was getting over COVID, this was several months ago, and I was not about to run, Lizzie was actually first to the car, I was the last, so my team actually lost. And you know, as we think about the, the Christian life being this race, this marathon, I think it's helpful for us to have this team aspect in mind. It's not whether I can get to be the first one to the car. In fact, if one of my teammates, if one of my fellow church members, if another brother and sister in Christ stumbles behind me, it's, it's right and good for me to stop running and go and pick them up and bear their burden alongside with them. This is a team race. This is a team race. If we're going to put away the deceitfulness of sin, we are in this together. So all these things, they buffet us. You've got distractions. You've got suffering. You've got persecution. You have our sinful flesh that's pulling us away. You've got the pressure of this world. You've got Satan who's at work in this world. We've got all of these things, and, and they're all calling out to us. They're all calling out for our time and our attention, our commitment, and our, and our faith. And as we consider everything we're up against, as you consider everything we're up against, I hope, I hope that in your heart you're not feeling, oh yeah, I got this. I hope you're feeling that I am completely and utterly dependent on the Lord if I'm going to do this. I am completely and utterly dependent on His grace to strengthen me and to endure me. Yes, we are called to persevere in the face of all these things, but it's God who gives us the strength and the ability to do it. It's like that scene in Lion King where Simba sneaks off and he gets into, I don't know what it's called, the shadow land or anybody know? But he gets him and Nala into a little bit of trouble, and he's a little baby lion, you know, and he comes across these hyenas that want to kill him, and, and he lets, he, he's going to show off for, his, for Nala and, you know, because he's the future king, and he lets out this little growl at these hyenas, and it sounds like a house cat, right? It's not intimidating at all. They laugh at him, and then he, he goes to let out a second growl, and it's just this ferocious roar, and Simba, for a split second, thinks he did something. He's like, wow, I did that, but he turns around, and he sees that it's actually his dad, the king, who is behind him, roaring. So we are certainly called to hold fast to the word, and we, we do, we cling to it, we fight for it, we labor for it. But on, the, on that day, when we see Christ, we will see with absolute clarity that it was him holding us. And it's God's great wisdom. The, the greater we grasp that it's him holding us, it actually motivates us to cling to him. Let's pray. Lord, we've got too much in front of us. We are so helpless in and of ourselves. We need your work. We need you to work through your word. You need your spirit. We need your spirit to change us, to mold us, to persevere us, to strengthen us. May you do that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.